around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor on New Civil Engineer. I'm co-hosting this episode with our Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Holgren. This episode's a little different to our normal end of the month release. Instead of the editorial team having our news chat about what's been going on in the last month and then introducing our special guest, we've asked this episode's interviewee to join us for a run through the news too. And I'm very pleased to welcome our guest, Ed McCann, who's just been inaugurated as the 157th President of the Institution of Civil Engineers. As well as being the ICU's new president, Ed is also senior director at Expedition Engineering. Ed graduated from Imperial College London in 1989 with a degree in civil engineering. During 12 years with Binney and Partners, he obtained a master's in hydraulic engineering and worked on some 50 infrastructure projects all over the world during his time there. He joined Expedition Engineering in 2002, where he has been project director for many projects, including the multi-award winning Infinity Bridge and the Olympic 2012 Velodrome. Ed is also Royal Academy of Engineering Visiting Professor of Innovation and a member of the UK's I3P Strategic Leadership Group, which is focused on innovating across the built environment. He co-created cross-industry initiatives, including the Construction Arium, the Get It Right Initiative and the Expedition Workshed. Along the way, he's appeared on 35 television programmes on engineering and allegedly has a fan in Japan. I think we'll have to come back to that Japan comment for more explanation later, but welcome, Ed. Well, good morning, Claire, and thanks very much for the invitation. Welcome, Ed. So before we get to the bottom of that Japan story, let's take a look at the news over the last month, shall we, and get your, your views on it too. So I, I guess a good place to start is a spending review and the lack of appearance of the integrated rail plan within that. I joked at the time that Grant Schatz must have had a bet on whether he could get to discuss the integrated rail plan on every episode of the Engineers Collective this year. And I think he's gone a good way about that. Chris Eaton Harris told delegates at the Rail Industry Association conference at the start of the month that the plan was coming soon, but HS2 Minister Andrew Stevenson also told me that in July. At the time of recording this episode, it hasn't yet been published, but I'm reliably told that it will be out by the time this episode goes live. There have been plenty of rumours about major changes to rail plans in the UK, but rather than speculate further at this point, I think it'd be quite interesting to explore what such long delays mean for the industry. Mm. Well, another delay to the plan obviously just adds to the rumour mill, as you said there, Claire. And I think it's pretty much a given now that the eastern leg of HS2 will be scaled back in in some form. Uh, The latest suggestion is that it will be replaced with two shorter high-speed sections between Leeds and Sheffield and Birmingham and East Midlands Parkway. But like you said, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's wait and see for the actual plan and what it actually means. The other major scheme that we're obviously waiting to hear about is Northern Powerhouse Rail. There has actually been less in the way of leaks about what the integrated rail plan could mean for Northern Powerhouse Rail, but there has also again been some suggestion that it will be scaled back or replaced with a series of upgrades rather than new lines. One thing that Tim Wood, Northern Powerhouse Rail Director for Transport for the North, did say recently was that the delays so far to the plan mean that the planned construction date 
2024-2025 is now extremely unlikely to to happen if they did get the go-ahead. So obviously it's had, um, before the publication of the plan, the delays to it has already had an impact on that project. So I think the bigger picture here is it, this kind of uncertainty is quite challenging for the construction industry. Ed, what, do, what impact does this have in terms of skills and planning, do you think? Well, of course, in, in an industry, uh, the scale of infrastructure, uh, we, we do need some future viewers to what's what's coming down the pipeline in order to plan business activities, whether you're going to make investments in plant and staff and, and so on. And so any uncertainty is is unhelpful. But I I do have some sympathy with the government's position because clearly COVID has had a, a huge impact on public transport and has introduced a whole series of questions about what are the, the patterns of uh, public movement need in the future. And so, uh, yes, I think it's, it's entirely right that we sort of uh, pause momentarily and think carefully about what, what the, those future patterns will be and, and make decisions accordingly. And what about the spending review itself? Did it deliver what the industry needs? What do you think, Ed? On balance, I think the spending review did deliver what industry needs. I mean, what you're seeing is a clear uh, and consistent signal from government that they value infrastructure and the impact that it has on society, positive impact that it has on society. They've stuck to their manifesto pledge, which I think is great. And overall, the message is, is sort of steady as she goes. And if you compare where we are now with where we were 20 years ago, you're basically seeing government committed to infrastructure, which I think is entirely positive. Uh, of course, uh, when when the facts change, when new information comes available, you need to review your decisions. And, and so we expect to see things uh, um, you know, changing over time as we see the, the debate on rail at the moment. And I think um, that's, that's entirely sensible. We see uh, more in, in the spending review about carbon and how we're going to meet the energy and carbon challenges of the future. But overall, I think we're, we're seeing, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with the spending review. I think it sends broadly the right signal. Rob, what about the industry? How did the rest of the industry react? Yeah, I think Ed summed it up pretty well there in terms of the overall industry reaction. There was sort of, you know, a lot of pledges in terms of this is the budget for, for an infrastructure revolution. That was how it was built. And there are plenty of sort of tangible takeaways from it. But as, as we sort of alluded to already, it was sort of the bits that were missing, I guess, that grabbed the headlines, no HS2 commitment, no Northern Powerhouse Rail. Uh, equally, there was a bit of a funding, or when I say a bit, a £3.4 billion funding cut from the RIS2 budget. However, on closer inspection, that's not so much a funding cut. However, schemes such as Stonehenge Tunnel and Lower Thames Crossing have sort of been kicked into the next investment period because of all the associated delays and planning holdups that they've uh, encountered. Um in terms of what the budget did include, it was, there was a long-term pipeline of over 50 local roads upgrades worth £2.6 billion. More than £5 billion was committed for local roads maintenance, which will be enough to fill 1 million potholes a year. Uh, there was £5 billion funding for buses, cycling and walking schemes. Obviously, as Ed alluded to there, with the impact of COVID, the importance of active travel schemes is becoming more and more important and more and more sort of part of the public conversation. 105 local projects will benefit from a 1.7 billion levelling up fund. Um, these are all types of things, all sorts of transport projects and infrastructure schemes and sort of everything from cultural stuff. I think there was a Beatles museum in Liverpool. So uh, pretty much everything that covered. £5.7 billion uh, fund for the regions for London style transport infrastructure. So that's the sort of one tap oyster card type 
sort of payment services and £23 million of new funding in anticipation of the final recommendations from Sir Peter Hendy's Union Connectivity Review, um, which is obviously another review we're waiting on and uh, could could be as interesting as the Integrated Rail Plan, depending on what comes out of it. I hopefully see that soon. The other topic I think has been dominating is, and rightly so, is the climate crisis with COP26 taking place in Glasgow at the start of this month. There are lots of big headline pledges, maybe not as strong as some people were hoping, but how do we take those away and apply them to our day-to-day work? Ed, what were the best things to come out of COP26 and what do you think it means for civil engineers? Well, there were several things that struck me personally. Uh, I mean, both in terms of the declaration, but also what went on at COP26. And the first of them was the the sort of growing role of non-state actors and and the, the companies who are turning up and frankly are pledging ahead of and making commitments ahead of the governments. And I think that's really important uh, because it it demonstrates their commitment. And and frankly, unless and until businesses start committing to this, it's going to be tricky to make progress. And, And so that was, I thought, very positive. I mean, obviously, the commitments on fossil fuel reduction, although they didn't go as far as, as I suppose, most people wanted, it's the first time that we've had any at all. And, and we hope that next year they'll get tightened up and what's going on will become clearer. Um, the public involvement and interest I take to be really positive also. I mean, the, the amount of uh, activity from civil society uh, felt much more than at Paris to me. And, and of course, public attitudes in the end drive political decision making. And, and so I, I take that as a very positive thing. And finally, uh, the, the idea that adaptation is now seriously on the list of things we need to focus on. It's not just about reducing emissions. It's about adapting to climate change that will happen. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm positive about the fact that they, they, they pushed the idea that there needs to be research on adaptation in the future. And so I, I think very this is all important for engineers, but particularly, I mean, we are going to be responsible for delivering an adaptation agenda, whether that's increasing the resilience of existing assets or providing schemes that provide better protection to society and the environment. And so that, that's clearly important to engineers, as indeed are, are dealing with how we how we deal with carbon and energy challenges in the future. So lots for engineers to get their teeth into, I think, and lots to pay attention to. But overall, I'm, I'm reasonably positive. I mean, it's not as much as one might have hoped, um, but it, it's, it's um, a step in the right direction. Yeah, very true there, Ed. I think civil engineers have to make climate adaptation, climate um, crisis part of everything they do. You can't consider it as a separate part of our job anymore. But what I was really encouraged to see was the young engineers make themselves heard at the event too. There was a delegation from the World Federation of Engineering Organisations, Global Young Engineers Working Group, who made 12 recommendations to political leaders at COP26. The course for action made 12 recommendations, and they're quite wide-ranging, but the the group urged for engineering to be viewed as a critical component to informing, advising, implementing and monitoring impact of evidence-informed policies that contribute to climate action and the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. And I think that's really important that they really put engineering at the heart of that and the ability of our industry to actually deliver on some of these issues. What else came out of that? Yeah, well, obviously the other major sort of headline to come out of the conference was the the commitment to end the use of coal. And uh, sort of more interestingly, I guess, for us is what that means for the, the planned Cumbria coal mine, which we've obviously been reporting on 
you know, for a number of years now. Boris Johnson himself said that the deal struck um, by world leaders means that the death knell has been sounded for coal. However, when asked on the Cumbria project specifically, he did concede that it was not his decision to make, even though he's not a fan of it himself. Even still, I'd be very surprised to see that project sort of resurface or push ahead now um, with all the opposition to it up to this point and with the COP26 commitments and, as Ed alluded to, the sort of refining of those commitments later down the line as well. So just picking up something you said earlier, Ed, about the, the role that companies are playing, I think that was the other interesting thing, was that the industry has really used the discussions in Glasgow as a platform for themselves to actually talk about it um, and talk about what they are going to do. I was at the Rail Industry Association Conference at the start of the month and Shadow Transport Secretary Tan Desi was calling on the government to reinstate the Rail Electrification Programme to deliver on decarbonisation. He was saying that a countrywide programme of work and long-term order book would drive down the cost of the work and create efficiencies in delivery too. And it was a massive area of the government to axe the programme. And at the same event, Langer Rock Technical Director Andrew Wollstoneholm outlined the need for greater investment in research and development to deliver the technologies and innovations that we need to drive decarbonisation in construction. But he said clients also need to change procurement practices to create the financial ability of contractors and consultants to actually fund that work. And Arab has taken a different approach altogether, haven't they, Rob? Uh, yeah, they have indeed. They're, they're doing a couple of things, actually, and which were announced um, not at the conference, but while the conference was ongoing. So first of all, Arup announced that from next April, its energy commissions will focus entirely on low carbon solutions, in particular wind, solar, hydroelectric and hydrogen projects. Um, what that means is as of April the 1st, 2022, Arup will no longer pursue any new energy commissions that support the extraction, refinement or transportation of hydrocarbon-based fuel. Uh, there's a lot of jargon in there, but basically what that means is Arup has shunned dirty energy projects for later of a, be- a better term. Equally interesting, Arup is also committed to undertaking whole life cycle carbon assessments for all of its building projects from next year and says that it will do the same for its infrastructure projects in the not-so-distant future, which is a, is a really interesting stance and I wouldn't be surprised to see pretty much everybody else follow suit there's sort of been that discussion, hasn't there, over the last few years, whether clients or sort of the, the companies themselves, the engineering firms themselves, should be driving this change. So it's really encouraging to see Arup sort of take the initiative and, and say they're going to do this almost without being asked to by the clients themselves. There are also firms that are calling for new standards and guidance to be set to leverage decarbonisation. But I've always believed that standards are more of a minimum of where companies should be and they always lag a few years behind best practice. And that's the case with its health and safety or climate change. I think the time for doing the minimum when it comes to climate change is over. Major players do need to follow Arup's approach and, and set themselves their own standards and guidance. Ed, what are your thoughts? Do you think that we should be applying the carrot or stick to drive change or a bit of both? I, I would definitely say it's a bit of both. You, you're going to have uh, market leaders who see either uh, from an ethical perspective or simply to gain some kind of differentiation in the market, they're going to say, I'm going to lead on this. I'm going to be known for being famous on my carbon stance. And there will be organisations like Arup who are leading in this. And I'm uh, well done to Arup. Um, and let's hope many more follow in their in their footsteps. But regulation is really important for the, the long tail of laggards who aren't necessarily going to do do much unless uh, unless they're forced to. So uh, for me, it's both. You've got You've got to... You want your industry leaders to to push ahead ahead of the regulation, but you need the regulations to control the behaviour of the the least willing, shall we say? 
So I guess with all this discussion around climate change, it leads us on nicely to talk about your year as president of the ICE and how you're going to take past President Rachel Skinner's climate change focus further. She spent the year asking us, what are you going to do? And she asked you that directly as she handed over to you during your presidential address. So for those who haven't seen the video, can you tell us what you are going to do and what the theme of your presidential year will be? Yes, of course. Uh, Rachel did a fantastic job last year in raising awareness of the issue of carbon of climate uh, across the civil engineering community. And and anyone who heard her uh, speak cannot now claim that they don't understand the role that civil engineers have played in, uh, you know, carbon and climate and will play in addressing the challenges that flow from carbon and climate. And so she's done a great job there. And and what we're doing this year um, is we're, in a sense, answering the question, well, what do we do about that? Now we care about it, or, you know, more people care about it, enough people care about it. What exactly do we do about it? And what we're we're framing the answer to that question around the idea of improving continuously productivity. And within that sort of frame of productivity, we've got the idea of doing the right stuff, doing the right things, the right projects, those projects which add to um, society and which address the climate challenge and the other challenges that we face in the 21st century. So productivity having effective impact by doing the right things. And at the same time, doing projects right without waste, without using more materials or energy or carbon or land than you actually need. And so our answer, our follow-on uh, this year, my my answer is to, to really focus on improving productivity defined in that way as doing the right projects and doing the projects right. And so there's a lot of work that we're doing and will be doing, and we're not the only ones. This is a key issue for a lot of our clients as they try and address their own net zero challenges and engage with the need to improve value for money to taxpayers and everybody else. And so there's a, a, I think it's, it's the right moment. Sometimes these things uh, need a, a moment when they can be energised and it feels like this is one. And so, yes, that's that's basically the answer is uh, to to Rachel's challenge. Well, let's double down on productivity. Do the right projects. Do it right without waste. And in doing that, we'll 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 really turn the dial on climate and carbon and a lot of the other issues that we need to worry about. Mm. So it sounds like there's plenty of foot already. Could you explain why productivity and reducing waste is something you're so passionate about? Was it an experience on a past project or a series of incidents that sort of given you the determination to make a change and make that a focus of your sort of presidential year? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've, I've always liked sort of clever, simple engineering. I've always always preferred things that that solved problems without waste. I don't know why that is, but I've always always been like that and I always been quite seduced by the old cliche that an engineer does for a penny what any fool can do for a pound I I kind of like that just yeah resonates with me and more recently I've been involved in a number of uh, projects research projects like the get it right initiative and, and work recently for major infrastructure companies on productivity where I've been struck repeatedly by the the sort of gross and endemic problems of waste and inefficiency in our processes as a sector, uh, and frankly sort of irritated and offended by them and feeling that we need to do a lot better. 
So I, that's my sort of take on it. And I, I, what I found when I, I've spoken to people about this is, is the incredibly positive reaction you get is that it turns out nobody thinks wasting stuff is a good idea. Who knew? Anyway, so you, you, you I, I think it's sometimes when you say it, it's amazing how people sort of marshal around and go, okay, what, what, what can we do to address this? Because it clearly isn't a good thing. I guess it's a really good focus for people to actually have some practical solution to the carbon challenge as well. They can actually get behind this. Yes, I think that there is a, a real challenge in, in the sense that we do what we do. We've become quite used to behaving the way we behave. Even in a really simple sense is we overorder concrete. We don't even think about it. We just, we always round up. We want to make sure we haven't left a little gap at the top of the mould and the, 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 the form's full to the brim, you know. And so what do we do? We, we order 5% more concrete and we throw it on the ground. And we don't, we don't even think about that very much. It's just so ingrained in our behaviour. We don't realise the aggregate consequence of all of that. And sometimes I think we just need to challenge ourselves and our colleagues and go, did we really need to do that? Is there a better way? Is there a way of not over-ordering concrete? Can we do that? Uh, and so, yes, I think we need to have a good look at ourselves and challenge ourselves and... Uh, to continually improve and, and get rid of the waste, frankly. Right. So moving away from your presidential theme and perhaps focusing more on your experience, can you tell us a bit more about your career? I guess the project you're best known for is the Olympic Velodrome. How did expedition engineering's involvement in that scheme come about and what did you personally learn from that? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's funny, actually. If, if you remember back to sort of 2006, seven, uh, everyone was very busy and uh, I remember as a company, us sort of being quite sniffy about, oh, well, the Olympics, it's a lot of hassle. There's the procurement is going to be gargantuan and do we really need it and, and all this sort of stuff. And then I was sitting in the pub with my business partner, Chris Wise, one day. And uh, after a pint, we, we reflected on the fact it was a bit lame that a, a sort of a, a young design company in London wasn't even going to try and, and do one of uh, a once in a lifetime Olympic projects. And so... Uh, we sat there and thought, well, perhaps perhaps we'll go for one. We said, you know, we'll have a go at one of these projects. Um, and so we had another pint. And w- which one should we go for? And and at the time, we 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 well, we wanted to do a venue where we might get medals. We imagined ourselves taking the kids there and and you know actually winning something. And at the time, the the GB team was famous for sitting down events, so they were good at horse riding, rowing, and cycling. And so we decided to go for a sitting down venue. And when we looked at horse riding, we thought, well, there's not much there. It's sort of a, it's sort of more, more or less a, a marquee and a, a couple of seats. And uh, the rowing was a lake and there wasn't very much we could see ourselves doing on those things. So we said, well, let's have a go for the velodrome and see if we can we can do that. So we had another pint or two and said, well, how should we do it? And uh, anyway, by the end of the evening, we decided we would call our friends um, at Hopkins, Mike Taylor, in fact. And and so we called him the next day and said, Mike, do you fancy having a go for the velodrome? And he said yes. And so we put together a team and, and uh, joined into what was a very, very competitive design competition um, to win the opportunity to be the design team for the 2012 velodrome. And, and fortunately, we won. Well, fortunately for us, anyway, we won. And what did we learn? I mean, it was one of those projects where it, it was it was just a delight from start to finish, really, in the sense that um, the client was really, really clear that they were recruiting a team, not a scheme. They, they, they wanted to get the right people in the room and then work together to try and sort of deliver a really, really good outcome for for the Olympics. And, uh, and so, and, and it, that, that sort of attitude just was everywhere on it. And so it was, it was a, a very positive experience all the way around. And um, 
I think everyone involved, the contractors, the project managers, the client, um, cyclists, and, and and certainly us as a design team, we 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 left the project with a with a real smile on our face. And of course, to cap it all, on on opening day, um, we're in there, and and there's few things better than sitting with your family watching world records get broken and the Australian team get roundly beaten. So it was good, good, good. And you helped Team GB win seven gold medals, is that right? Well, I think true credit's got to go to the cyclists. They did the really hard work. But um, we we did try and help our, help out a little bit. And uh, Chris Hoy, who was on the jury and became an advisor to the team about the sort of the, the design of the velodrome from, a, from an athlete's perspective, he, he sat down and told us there are five secrets to making the fastest velodrome in the world. And, and so we, uh, we listened very carefully and we put all five of those secret measures into the velodrome and 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 for a time i mean it, you know a, it, a lot of world records were broken there more or less as soon as it opened so for a time it certainly was the fastest velodrome in the world but i'm afraid i can't tell you what those five secrets are that's part of the guild of olympic velodrome and cycling society i think what that that story sort of shows is how passionate you are for sort of collaborating on projects often over a beer, like you said there. Um, could you explain to us how a sort of chance conversation helped to solve the roof drainage issue at, at Heathrow's Terminal 5? Oh, yes. Well, that's that's going back rather a long way. That's sort of 1999, 2000. And, and the younger members of the audience won't perhaps remember Terminal 5, but in its day, it was the big infrastructure project happening at the time, or certainly one of them. And it was being led by BAA, who were a very progressive infrastructure client who were trialling integrated design teams and partnering, collaborative working and so on. And, and uh, I was part of that team uh, sitting in a, an office on the perimeter of Heathrow Airport with two or 300 other people doing the, the design of, of um, Terminal 5. And I was in charge of the water engineering team. And in the entrance hall to the building was a perspex scale model of the terminal, the main terminal building. And uh, I was standing in front of this one day and I was I was looking at the the facades and they didn't have any drain pipes on them. And it's it's a big building. I mean, it's 400 metres by 180 metres, so six hectare roof that you would you definitely need to drain. And the lead architect, a chap called Mike Davis, who who went on and we became great friends later, but he was walking past and I said, Mike, um, you don't know who I am. I'm 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 Ed. I run the sort of water engineering team and I'm rather intrigued looking at your model here because I can't see any downpipes on it. And um, he, so he, he more or less jumped out of his skin. It was like what lighting a touch paper on a firework. And he said, don't get me started. Drain pipes, they're doing my head in. And he, he proceeded to tell me the sad saga of how he was being told by his uh, building services engineers that he was going to need hundreds and hundreds of tiny downpipes all crisscrossing on the facade and it was all going to be really, really grim uh, and, and impact on the sort of clarity and simplicity of the, the, the design concept that they had. And anyway, that that Im- immediately turned into a sort of four-hour conversation, which meant I didn't get home until after 10 o'clock at night and, and, and resulted uh, some months later after a few iterations in the drainage design solution that we actually put in place on, on Terminal 5. And any of you who stand in, in front of the building now will see some rather extraordinary um, stainless steel tubes coming down from the roof with very expressed hoppers at the top. And uh, and there aren't many of them. And so, so yes, that was the, the story of it. So you basically brought dam engineering to T5? Yes, Claire, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, the... the 
the the if you look at the hoppers, you can't see inside them, but what you would see is is engineering more typical of dam spillways and overflow structures. And we were working in uh, I was working in the hydraulics department at Binney's, and that was yeah we we were using dam spillway engineering to make those things work efficiently. So more broadly, why do you think the collaboration at all levels is so important when it comes to successful project outcomes? I think it's pretty obvious why collaboration is important when you think about it. And and it's basically this, is that what we do is we deliver quite complex processes with lots and lots of inputs from lots and lots of people. And um, if you want to get good answers, it's really critical to have all of the information available at the time you need it in order to make top quality decisions and come up with good answers. And the only way to do that is to collaborate. And that's not just collaborating within the team so that you can understand what, let's say, a specialist supplier in the supply chain knows, but it's, it's people who are not in the core process. Maybe it's, it's people who sit outside, key stakeholders, and local communities and so on. All of these people have information or have insights that need to be factored in if you're going to produce really good outcomes for all concerned. So, And collaboration is basically, for me, it's about the process of getting the right humans into the right place, uh, saying the right right stuff at the right time. It's critical and obvious. So, so far we've, we've talked predominantly about your sort of career highlights. Um, maybe we can change tack slightly, talk about some sort of more challenging projects. Perhaps we can talk about the Cutty Sark or was there another project in your career that you sort of was a bit more challenging and gave you some really valuable lessons? Um, we don't need to mention clients if that's the sensitive bit. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's that's also going into the back catalogue a little bit. But yeah, I mean, nobody uh, does anything. It's, it's it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But you, if you if you haven't made an error, you've never actually done anything. And when we were doing the Get It Right initiative, we found that everybody has their own little store cabinet of uh, sad stories that only come out over a glass or two. And I've certainly got plenty. Um, and one, the one that you're referring to there is is uh, where we were I, we were responsible for the civil engineering on a, a sort of fairly large waterfront redevelopment brownfield redevelopment project on the Greenwich Peninsula. And uh, and one very bad Friday afternoon. Don't ask me why it's always Friday afternoon when these things happen. But um, we managed through a combination of um, well idiocy on my part and poor attention to detail <laughs> generally to uh, drive two holes through a, a major sewer in a period of 40, 45 minutes. And uh, although we put all of that right, as we do in these circumstances, and we move on, so it was a week or so, we, we sorted all of that out. But over the weekend, there was a big fire, and I woke up to the news that the Cutty Sark had burnt down. And uh, the following evening, I was I was up all night uh, with a fevered imagination because I uh, somehow or other I, I'd managed to conclude that in knocking a couple of holes in a sewer, we'd flooded something in a substation and sparks had flown and that I was personally responsible for burning the cutty sark. And there were a lot of lessons in that from me, both about it's not a good idea to put holes in sewers you don't mean to, but uh, also what can happen in the middle of the night when your fevered imagination gets the better of you. So, yeah, learning all round in there. So what about projects from your early career? Not ones that have gone wrong particularly, but ones that stand out in terms of professional and personal development. What were they and what did you gain from them? 
Well, well, early in my career, I, I worked on a number of flood alleviation and canal restoration projects, which were really located in, in communities. And I, I think they were really influential on sort of shaping my thinking and understanding of the purpose of civil engineering projects, because we were, we were in the communities that we were doing the work on. And whilst you're very aware that you might be going somewhere that's not familiar to you, you fly in, you fly out, you you do your stuff and move on. For the people you're working with, the, the landowners, the local you know, residents, this is their life. What you're doing is of absolute critical importance to them, either because it'll damage the house, maybe imperil their lives and so on. And I, I think I, it really stuck with me, that experience of working with people and that on the other end of our work are real human beings who get to use the consequences of what we do, whether it's good or bad. And the other thing I'd say about working in that sort of environment was the realisation that we everything we do is in the context of really quite complex natural environmental economic and social systems and and good answers have to be good answers that consider all of those factors and i found that that working on those sorts of projects was a really good way of getting an early understanding of just how important these sort of systemic features are to good infrastructure and engineering solutions and another one that was really significant for me was I, I did my site experience working with Taylor Woodrow in Cardiff on deep drainage schemes. So we were we were digging, um, yeah, we were placing deep drains six, seven metres down in the ground through through an old industrial estate. And I mean, the, the experience I had there where I was, first of all, I was a setting out engineer then a site, you know, responsible for a section and ordering materials and planning activities. And ultimately, as I sort of raced up the sort of site hierarchy during my experience, I, I learned a huge amount about what it was to to sort of plan construction operations and to have to deliver them. And I, I would say to anyone who plans a career as a designer sitting in a design office, you really should take some time to go and try and build something in on a on a construction site. The, the the accelerated learning you get in those short periods of time is profound and sticks with you forever. And I think sort of a year on site is worth ten years in a design office in terms of the experience you gain of that part of the work. And I one thing that was really really powerful for me was is I was working with these characters who I can remember well now. Several of them are still my friends and, and you know, they, they happen to spend their life at the bottom of trenches, digging holes, fighting the water, trying to get the thing done, come rain or shine, and uh, valiant souls, one and all. And and I learned a huge respect for those individuals and characters doing that job. And I don't think you can you can get there unless you try and walk in the same shoes as they've got i get down the hole and have a go yourself it changes you um, and it's impossible for me to think about those activities in the way i might have done before having tried to you know build that stuff be there yourself so uh, uh, that was very powerful for me as an early experience so st- sticking with your early career and maybe looking at a little bit earlier even what was it that sort of inspired you to get into the sector in the first place were there were there other civil engineers in your family or was there something in particular you saw being built? I, I don't think I really knew what civil engineering was when I was at school. It wasn't, I, I knew sort of science and engineering sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm sort of, a, my, my parents were Irish immigrants and, and uh, in sort of West London in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, 
uh, if you came from that community, everybody was in the building trade and, and I was certainly one of those. So lots and lots of my parents' friends were builders or electricians or plumbers and we just got dragged into building things. So I worked on sites from probably about 15 years old and I spent my... Uh, my summer holidays through university, most of them at least anyway, working on sites. As a, I, I used to call myself a uh, an electrician's mate because that sounded posher than a labourer and electricians always consider themselves the intellectuals at a building site, but um, we all know the truth. I was just doing labouring. So I knew about building and I knew about sites, but I didn't really know about civil engineering. And I was I was woken up to civil engineering at a careers fair where I went in and, and there was a stall and there was a, a nice old chap there um, in a tank top and with his model of a dam and I asked him what they did and he said we do water supply schemes and we build roads and railways and we do all this sort of stuff and and I thought that sounds great you know that doing something useful for society and that really appealed to me and was a to be blunt it was quite a contrast to the next stalls which were um, the, at the time they were all tank propulsion units and missile guidance systems and as a sort of slightly hippie 18 year old I thought I'd rather spend my career building stuff than blowing it up so that was the route into civil engineering for me so once you had graduated and joined Benny you then went to Mexico to do your master's that's a bit of an unusual move isn't it and I've got to ask did you speak Spanish or enough to do your thesis in Spanish before you went well the the Mexico adventure was all about love really um I I uh I had met uh, my now wife Yolani on a on a holiday in 1990 and and got embroiled in a ridiculous transatlantic love affair which meant I flew over there once every few months for a couple of years and uh, spent every penny I didn't have and came to a point where um I had uh, a simple choice to make which was about being bankrupt or as my friend suggested to me moving out there and uh, and doing the right thing so I uh, was trying to figure out how to do that and I went into the office and uh, who, who my, my company, Binion Partners, ran a bursary scheme at the time. And I went to my boss, Peter Clark, and uh, even as I, I approached his desk, I could see the smile on his face. And I said, uh, Peter, um, I've come to a moment in my career where I really think I need to double down on my technical expertise and get myself a master's in hydraulic engineering, giving all the all the hydraulic engineering work we're doing here. And he's chuckling away to himself and he says, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, no, that sounds, sounds interesting. Um, what are you thinking about? I says, well, I've been looking at courses all over the place and there's a, there's a really great course that I'd like to do. Uh, and he said, where is it? I said, well, it's actually the National University of Mexico uh, course in hydraulic engineering. And once I'd picked him up off the floor, he very kindly agreed to support my application. And so off I went to Mexico for two years and and had a fantastic time and... And indeed, I learned a load. It was actually a very, very good course. And, and uh, so I, I uh, yeah, and I did, I had to sit an entrance exam in Spanish, which they had to sort of translate the questions for me. But by the time I'd finished, I, I got reasonably fluent and I did my thesis in Spanish and, and so on. And I, I, I like to think that Binny's got their money's worth in the end because I hung around for a number of years and we did some really good projects. And um, so, so, yeah, good story all around. And, and well, I'm still married, so it's probably worth something. So I think it's pretty fair to say you've had a, a fairly broad experience from, you know, design through to on-site delivery of projects. You've worked in the UK, been, worked internationally, both for large firms and smaller ones. Uh, what is it about this sort of combination of experiences that you think will make you a different ICE president to those that have perhaps gone before you? 
Well, of course, all IC presidents are different and everybody brings their own particular flavour. I suppose, um, yeah, and I'm as different as everybody else is, but one thing that perhaps is a little bit unusual to me is the sort of amount of time I've spent working in entrepreneurial startup sort of business. So I have done that little business um, through the growth phase and and into a sort of slightly bigger business. But but so that though, that that's a particular experience and most IC presidents, if you look at them over recent years, they, 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 their experience has been in big corporations or in as leading up university departments. And so perhaps that will bring a, a slightly different uh, view to the situation. Hopefully it adds some value anyway. But all in all, I think, yeah, well, we'll see, won't we? But uh, that's, that's perhaps something that's a little bit different from me. So I knew you looked like a natural when it came to your presidential address film. Did your TV experience come into play there? And can you tell us a little bit about the programmes you've been involved in? And is this where we get an answer to your the question about your fan in Japan too? Uh, yes. Well, well, I yes. When I look back on it, I have actually done quite a lot of TV. I started back in two thousand and two, uh, and I've done um, I think it must be close to forty programs now, either as a presenter or a contributor. And in the early years, they were fantastic because they used to take you to the places. And I, I went up Salisbury Cathedral and leaned out of the window, and I went to the Parthenon under the Eiffel Tower and on canals in the Loire Valley and all sorts. And latterly, it's been a lot more sitting in studios while they project images of places they're not going to take you to onto a screen behind you. But but it, it has been a, an interesting and useful experience. And I would definitely commend it to people. If you do get the chance to have a go at making TV, video, documentaries and so on, give it a shot because you learn a lot about how to compose yourself in front of camera to rev yourself up and deliver, apart from the sort of fact that sometimes you get to meet really interesting people and go to interesting places. But it's uh, certainly quite developmental. And as for the fan in Japan, that was slightly tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I uh, Well, if you remember back in the 80s, it used to be a bit of a cliche that if your band wasn't very good in the UK, you'd always, you'd always do well in Japan. So people had fans in Japan. So I was doing that, although I did have a a, a fan in, in Washington as a, a young fella. I think he was three years old. His mum wrote to me saying his son was absolutely fascinated with me. And whenever I was on the telly, he would come up and pat the screen and wave at me and things like that. But perhaps the strangest experience I had was I was I was flying back and forth to Rio as part of their Olympics a few years ago. And I, I was walking towards the back of the plane towards the toilets. And, and people were staring at me a bit oddly as I walked down the aisle and and when I was returning from the toilet back to my seat, I, I understood why, because my ugly mug was on all of the screens and they were they were looping some um, documentary that I'd been on. And when I sat down in my seat, I, the guy next to me was just doing these ridiculous double takes as he, as he saw me on the screen and sitting next to him. And that was certainly uh, pretty odd, I have to say. But yes, TV. <laughs> I think that's just about all we've got time for in this episode. Thanks very much for joining us today, Ed. I'm very much looking forward to working with you over the course of your year in office and exploring the role of productivity in addressing the climate change in more detail too. Thank you. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.